0: You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Welcome to the Business Unusual Podcast. My name is Goke Mamaholo and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Lilemba Piri, uh, who is an angel investor. Um, she's the principal and founder of Africa Trust Group um, and operating partner at Enigma Ventures. Um, so I'm really Excited to be here. Um, one of the quotes I picked up from Lembo was, I've been an entrepreneur from childhood. Um, yeah. So, you know, when did, when did that start? How did it start? Like, how did you, you know, like, because not many children will say, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> so was that something that you realized later on in life? Or was like from the start, did you know, hey, I want to grow up to be an entrepreneur?
1: I didn't think I'd grow up to be an entrepreneur. I just knew I was one. I didn't think it was entirely a career option. Mm -hmm. Um, I always thought it was something that I would always do on the side, Um, because I think growing up there were some almost some predetermined professions that were acceptable. You know, being a doctor, being an engineer, being an accountant, Um, and entrepreneurship was not that fancy. Mm. Um, But I loved it because I love money and I've always loved money. And I thought it's a nice way to make money all the time, being an entrepreneur, you know, selling something, finding opportunities somewhere and just making money. It just never Mm. occurred to me at that age that it was actually a career option.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. So as an adult, do you think that there are certain things you learned as a child that kind of influenced who you are now?
1: Absolutely. I think my comfort around money is definitely one of those. And uh, my mother was very entrepreneurial. And so she had a number of businesses and um, she was an entrepreneur when it was not fashionable at all. And mm. when when she quit her job as a secretary at a big corporate, I think a lot of people were like, are you sure you know what you're doing? This was a great job. It was secure. And why are you getting into business? Um, but she had some successful businesses and, um, uh, I remember growing up uh, after school, going to one of her schools, she had two nursery schools. I'd go to the schools, I'd be writing out invoices, or I'd uh, hang out weekends at her stationery shop and be selling at the counter and writing out invoices. So I think just being comfortable with working with money and calculating money and touching money and feeling money was very useful to Mm -hmm. have speaking about
0: money um so the the thing that really kind of interested me the most about you was you know your experience um being a part of that startup that um managed to raise over 30 million and uh, obviously you left so Mm -hmm. i want to know number one is a series of questions why did you leave Um, not many many people would say okay we've reached this point let me leave You know, many people are like, okay, so we've scaled across the continent. Let's go even further. So why did you leave?
1: Yeah, I think that um, my career progression has always been a progression. I've always been drawn to the next bigger problem. Um, And uh, being part of Zona, which is the startup that um, grew from one country to five, we raised over $30 million was very exciting and was such a learning ground for what is possible if when you create a business that can both um, make profit, but also create impact for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd been in the business for seven years. So it's not like I woke up overnight to make such a decision. So it was a long term commitment. Um, but a bigger problem was calling me. And one of the things that I'd realized being at Zona and us being successful at that time is that we used to get invited to speak on many platforms and me particularly, I used to get invited to speak on many platforms, talking about either our fundraising journey or the impact we were making, creating female entrepreneurs because we had a network of agents that, um, it was a FinTech and we had a network of agents that used to do the transactions on behalf of their communities. Uh, And so this created a number of micro, almost like micro franchisees across these countries. And so I saw the impact that that could create if you um, have a business that has one, a diverse leadership team that then can create a diverse network of entrepreneurs. But one of the big shortfalls that I was seeing in our industry and in startups in general was how few female entrepreneurs were on the platforms that I'd be speaking at, Right. And so all this time you're being called to talk about, oh, share your success story, share your success story, and then you're only one of very few women on those platforms. And so it's a problem that I got curious about and started thinking, how do we create a lot more impact in this space by having many more women go through this fundraising journey and get to a space where the businesses can grow to be really impactful. Because it's not like women don't start businesses. Uh, Our our continent, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, is the one region in the world that has more women getting into entrepreneurship than men. However, their businesses end up being very small. uh, They get less valuations, they're less profitable. uh, And one of the big hurdles is definitely this access to finance. And uh, because I'd walked this walk before, I felt like I understood investor language and understood African woman entrepreneurial language. And I wanted to be part of the solution of bridging that gap between those two worlds. And so exiting the business at that time was with a big vision to get into investing and particularly to bridge the access to finance gap for women.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and how, did you, how did you go about doing that? So what were the things that you, wanted, you decided to kind of do to make that impact?
1: went into it very naively. That's what, that's what, that's what I can say. Uh, I thought that, um, so first I started with my own money, right? Because I exited with some money from Zona and I put aside some funds. I said, I'm going to do some angel investing first. Mm -hmm. I quickly realized that with only my own funds and angel investing, because angel investing is really investing really small ticket sizes, quite early stage in a, in a person's business. Um, That again, still, Whilst it can help somebody launch, particularly from idea to maybe trying to get some product market fit, there's still this space where they've gotten some product market fit and they might need to scale now to expand to create impact. And there you need a bigger ticket size, as you know, you need what we call seed tickets, which would be mm-hmm. around maybe two hundred thousand to a million dollars to make that happen. And so if I was limited to owning my own funds, I could only invest downstream. Investing downstream as an angel investor was super, super useful because I quickly understood what some of the hurdles were that women were experiencing, and how if we raised a bigger fund, um, we could create impact that unlocks, you know, catalytic growth for some of these businesses that kind of get stuck at that pre-seed seed seed stage. And so, anyway, I put together a pitch just like an entrepreneur, and I probably pitched to two hundred plus. DFIs, family offices, universities, and stuff like that. So just like I'm raising a fund, and this is the vision. This is what I want to do. There were lots of no's, obviously, on the way, and the reasons would be: you're a first-time fund manager. You've only been an entrepreneur. You haven't been an investor before. And even if I did do some angel investing, it was just not good enough for a lot of the the uh, limited partners that invest in venture capital funds. Uh, Until I met the Dusik family office and they got my pitch from two different sources and they had been thinking about how they could um, invest in women in Africa and weren't just quite sure how. And so we created a strategic partnership to launch Enigma Ventures where they brought the funding and I brought the operational experience and the networks here. Uh, to launch our fund and start doing this work investing in women entrepreneurs and so that was launched in october 2018 and so far we've invested in 11 businesses at seed level and four at pre-seed level
0: oh wow that's incredible um you know it's fantastic to hear that you know you obviously you left um with an idea in mind and you're realizing that idea yeah Um, so um you mentioned just now that um whilst the, after you left, while you're doing pitches and stuff, you've got a lot of rejections. Um, mm. so I just wanted to find out, you know, were they, were they kind of explanations of why your pitch was rejected? Uh, okay. Particular things that you learned and kind of adapted to, um, you know, what, what were the lessons there?
1: So, um, that's a great question, actually. Um, definitely some of the lessons were simple language issues. So for example, um, I I I teach every so often, like I teach MBA classes, um, mm. and workshops for execs, stuff like that. So there was a class that came from Columbia University in New York. They came to Cape Town, um, attached to the Graduate School of Business, the UCT Graduate School of Business, and I was invited to do a guest lecture with them. And so I was talking about this work that I was doing and my thoughts and my plans, and um, a smaller group of them about. 11 of them from the class were really excited about it and said they wanted to talk to me about that and see how they can get involved. And so one of the things I did with them was like, great, I think how you can get involved is read my pitch and then tear it apart. Just give me the mm-hmm. tough feedback, like what's wrong with it? What do you understand? What don't you understand? What should I check out completely? Mm -hmm. And um, they gave me such great feedback. Some of the issues were just like language. For example, my pitch had, uh, I wanted to invest in women entrepreneurs in the SADC region. SADC Mm -hmm. is Southern African democratic community. And Mm -hmm. because I live in Africa, I thought SADC was a common term, right? Mm -hmm. And then they were like, what is SADC? So I'm saying, Southern African Democratic Community. What's that? Oh, it's the 16 countries in Southern Africa. Well, we don't know that. And why mm-hmm. is that? Why is that your focus? I'm like, oh, the 16 countries are peaceful. They're all democratic. They've got agreements between themselves, put together. They have the same population as the U.S. And they're like, wow. Can you say that in the pitch? Because if you just mm-hmm. say SADC region, we don't know what SADC is or why it makes sense to focus on SADC. And then I was like, and there isn't enough funds in the SADC region. So they were like, just point that out because if you're sending it particularly to uh, investors in the West, they're not mm-hmm. going to know those facts. And then the minute I kind of did that piece on like my market and who I was targeting, I got mm-hmm. a lot better ahas, you know, because it's, mm-hmm. it's the same population as the U.S., It's got 16 countries instead of America's 50-whatever-plus states, you know? Mm -hmm. And so people started to get a conceptualization of this is potentially a good block. It's all democratic. They all get along. There's trade agreements between them, and maybe Mm -hmm. this is something that kind of makes sense. So some of it was just simple language uh, issues. Other no's were around, you are asking for too little. And look, I was asking for $5 million. $5 million in my mind was Mm -hmm. significant. Mm, Like you're asking for too little. Your fund won't survive because you have to think about your funding economics. How do you survive as you invest this five million dollars? Because if you say most typical venture capital funds will say two percent of the fund goes to management fees. And so Mm -hmm. some of the funders were like, even if we were to give you the two percent of that five million dollars for operational fees, management fees, you wouldn't survive. You wouldn't be able to have a good team around you to really be able to invest effectively. So some Mm -hmm. of those things are like, oh, you know, I had no idea. And it was great to get that feedback and then to ask, like, so what is a decent, um, you know, fund amount to start with and Mm -hmm. to get the feedback to say you have to think about your own economics because if you are not operating, you know, At a pace where you can pay yourself and you can pay quite a solid team, you're going to quit. This is not an easy game. And so you need to think Mm -hmm. about your fund economics. So there were all those key lessons, which you would have learned as an entrepreneur. But as a funder, it's different. And it's a different language. And it's a different way of thinking about your own business and your own business's economics. Because at the end of the day, as a fund manager, what you're essentially doing is you're almost like a broker between investors and entrepreneurs. And Mm -hmm. brokers get fees for doing that, you know, because they're linking these two worlds together. And you have to think a little bit differently from uh, when you're an entrepreneur and you're actually selling a product. Now you're almost, you know, selling people and businesses, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And so you have to think about how do your own economics work? Some of them were just like, uh, we don't believe there is enough women entrepreneurs and that you have a solid enough pipeline and we don't know, since you don't have investment experience, if this could actually work, maybe partner with somebody who's got more experience. You know, it was varied feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I persevered. And um, one of the points of great alignment with the Juicy family when we launched MakeMug Ventures Fund was how uh, we were both very clear that we wanted to invest in women entrepreneurs, one, and that we wanted to invest differently. We we didn't want to be the type of investors who say, here's the money, good luck, hope you make it, and we'll be back to check on it in three to five years. We wanted to walk a strategic partnership path with the entrepreneur to mm-hmm. try and help get them to be successful, you know, increase their odds of being successful by supporting them we've been entrepreneurs before ourselves and so we've worked this journey before and there are some lessons that we can definitely share and shed some light along the path and so we didn't want to be hands-off investors we wanted to come on more as strategic partners yeah
0: Mm. And and what sort of support were you offering? You know, um, you, know you want to be a strategic partner. So, what did that, what does that support look like? How are you yeah. obviously you're coming in with some as someone with experience as an entrepreneur? Yeah. What are you yeah. saying to? I think you mentioned about eleven um, companies you've invested in. Um, so, what are you saying to the people there? And is it is the advice? Is it just for the the you know the the leadership within those organizations, or does it kind of spread throughout?
1: It's mainly with the leadership because we offer support at uh, I would say three distinct levels. Number one is you know strategic guidance where we work together with the entrepreneur to think strategically about the growth of their businesses. You know entrepreneurship mm-hmm. can be very lonely, and uh, sometimes if you are a founder, you might be two two founders or a solo founder. You are so stuck in doing the business and in the business that you fail to create time to work on it. And working on it means looking into the future and seeing what are my options and which ones can I focus on right now to get the fastest growth um, with the least effort and Mm. money. Right. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you might have a really great product, but you're fascinated by 27 million other options. And you think, let me try this. Let me try this. Let me try this. And then nothing actually moves forward. And so Mm. one of the things strategically that we support entrepreneurs on is assessing their options and creating places of focus, even if it's uh, on a quarterly basis. And so we do strategic sessions with them and say, these are the three needle movers the big needle movers the three strategic areas you're going to focus on and let's work together what resources do you need to make this happen and what type of support do you need to make it happen focus is critical for execution you know and at the end of the day execution is what is needed for real growth you can dream up big dreams and you know say this is how we're going to be but if you can't put your head down to actually make it happen it's not going to happen and so focus is a key part of doing that. And so helping them to strategically focus on a few key things every quarter uh, has proved to be really important for seeing good growth towards key milestones, number one. Number two, we offer operational support. So um, we invest in entrepreneurs when, we're, when they're at that stage, when they're making maybe $50,000 a year or very clearly on the path towards making that. So they would be doing $4,000 a month And increasingly so, so it's 4,000 and growing. Um, At that point, there's a lot of operational support that that might be needed around things like their finances and getting, you know, a more CFO eye on their finances. How can they be a lot more efficient with how they invest their money and use their money in their businesses? Um, There might be help that might be needed around strengthening sales or strengthening marketing And so from an operational standpoint, we look at some of those key areas and try to provide them some support around that uh, or point them in the right direction. Sometimes it's just like I need recommendation for a good PR company that you feel is best positioned for supporting a business like mine. Because even Mm -hmm. even PR specialists, for example, might be great at an education business and -hmm. they might not be great at other industries. So giving them that type of operational support. Um, Third, it is about helping them open up markets We've had some businesses that have had to launch in the U.S., for example, to sell mm-hmm. their products in the U.S. So giving them that uh, access to market support, which might be everything from how do I set up over there to how do I open bank accounts, things like that, that helps them to expand faster. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. the main support that we give.
0: And, and when they are trying to access a market like the U.S., for example, and this kind of it ties into funding as well. So... When you're kind of looking for investors overseas, um, I have sort of two questions. So number one, is there a particular way we should be speaking to international investors as, you know, um, the business community in South Africa or, you know, the African continent at large? Um, Is there a particular way we should be speaking to them? And, you know, as businesses as well, is there there mistakes and how we're attracting investors, you know, is there something we should be doing differently to be able to attract the investment that we're always speaking about? You know, we're saying that in order to develop, we need more investment from the private sector, you know, you know, how are we speaking to the international community and what can we be doing differently in the way
1: that we speak to them? Hmm. I think that, uh, you know, I've realized that a lot of entrepreneurs hate pitching (laughs) I think pitching is a waste of time, and uh, people should just believe in my idea and you know back me. Mm-hmm. Um, but learning to pitch is a key skill. Mm-hmm. It's a key skill for many things, not just for raising investment, but also even for attracting strategic partners. It's important for attracting customers. Learning to communicate your business in a very succinct way, you know, mm-hmm. even if it's your one-minute elevator pitch, is critical. Because investors are looking at a thousand businesses a month, a thousand mm-hmm. businesses a month. Mm-hmm. So, how do you position yourself and differentiate yourself if it takes you 20 minutes to just explain what you do? Right. So, no. the ability to pitch in speech is important, and the ability to put together a succinct pitch deck, which is like maximum 10 pages. Please, nobody reads 30 page business plans. Mm-hmm. Nobody. if if they see your pitch and they're interested in it they'll ask you for the detail that they need and Mm -hmm. so there's standard templates for how to pitch and creating a pitch deck which Mm -hmm. will help you cover the key things that an investor would look for it will help you cover what problem you are solving it will help you cover what solution you have to that problem it will make you help you cover what's unique about your solution because one problem can have many solutions. What's unique about your solutions? It will help you cover how big the market is, which is critical for investors. We don't want mm-hmm. to invest in a in a thing that only has 10 customers, right? We mm-hmm. want to see that there's a big enough market that this thing can cover, which means it's got potential for real growth. It will help investors see how far you've come traction is important just speaking about your idea is not good enough there we're all waking up with ideas in africa because we've got so many challenges and every challenge that we come across we're all thinking about solutions right um but how what have you done about this problem so far we want to see what the traction is and for me that's one of the most critical pieces what have you actually done about it are you sitting just thinking about it and mulling about this idea and feeling like it's the best thing you know, Or have you actually started to make progress to, towards creating your solution and fixing this problem? It will help them see why you are best positioned to do this thing, because you will talk about yourself and your background and your team in that mm-hmm. pitch. You know, So there's a couple of key areas that in a snapshot, it can help somebody understand what your business is. And learning to pitch is actually a critical skill. You should be able to put together just a nice, clear pitch deck, and you should be able to also pitch In speech, You can do a 30-second pitch. You can do a one-minute pitch. You can do a three-minute pitch. And this depends on how much time the person you're speaking to has. And so if I introduce myself to you and say, hi, I'm Lilamba, I'm a gentleness investor. I link women entrepreneurs in Africa who are looking for investment with investors who are looking to invest in women entrepreneurs in Africa. 30 seconds, you know what it is that I do. Then Uh if you're interested, you can ask me, oh, how do you do that? then I can say I manage funds. And so we look for investors that want to invest in women entrepreneurs and we're investing at pre-seed level and at seed level. So you already know, okay, great. that's That's the how, you know. And on top of yeah. that, we provide them with support uh, strategically and operationally and also give them access to markets. That's my how, because now you're interested in hearing a little bit more. If you are interested in hearing a little bit more as well, what type of uh, industries are you in? Then I can get into more and more detail. But an ability to succinctly pitch, depending on how much time the person has, is really important. And I think we underplay that because, What we must understand is that even investors have investors, right? And so they're also pitching. And so uh, me as a fund manager, whilst I have some of my own money in my fund, I also have other people's money in my fund, which means that I need to guarantee a return for my investors. And so if you are feeling you shouldn't sell to me, how am I supposed to be convinced to invest in you? Because I have to sell to my investors and have to tell them why you are the one that I'm investing in, opposed to the 999 others who've applied. Yeah.
0: It's interesting to hear you mention um, a few things. So you mentioned gender lens investing. So you're a gender lens investor. And um, perhaps for, for the people in our audience who aren't familiar with the concept of gender lens investing, maybe you could perhaps tell us a bit about that, um, yeah. just so we can get an idea, and then we can chat a bit about you know what you're focused on, um, and you know kind of let's let's make this the pitch for gender lens investing. You know oh. what are we saying to the people? How do we get more people involved?
1: Cool. So gender lens investing is investing with gender in mind, and this is mostly done in three ways. Number one, you can look at businesses that have uh, women ownership and or leadership. So -hmm. from our perspective, we want to see that there's a woman who has a key stake in the business in terms of shareholding, but that we have women who are in strategic positions. So we don't want the woman to just be a shareholder by paper. We want Mm -hmm. to know that there's women leadership in the business as well. Two, it can be done by investing in products and services that are inclusive of women. Sometimes products get put out and, you know, businesses don't care whether this excludes women or or not. We Mm -hmm. want to make sure that the products we're investing in are deliberately inclusive of women and other genders, in fact, Mm -hmm. you know. And third, it's you can look at it as businesses that through them being businesses, create a value chain of other women-led businesses. So say I am um, I make spices, you know, mm-hmm. make spices, which means I need some herbs and stuff like that uh, to make my spices and to sell into the stores. Um, if I am creating a good value chain that's, ta- that's taking into consideration gender, it means that the people I'm buying spices from there's mm-hmm. herbs from might be women and also the shops I'm selling into might be women owned. And so looking through my value chain of where am I buying and where am I selling uh, to make sure that I am creating and supporting other women in my wake. Because, you know, impact is not just about investing in one person and one business. We want mm-hmm. to make sure that in their path, you know, as they're rising they are helping yeah. uplift others in the way. And so that, what, that really is what gender lens investing is about. Investing, making sure we're deliberately looking at gender as a key factor. Mm.
0: And in, in looking at gender as a key factor, do, yeah. have you experienced, have you found, are there a lot of companies that sort of fit the criteria? Or is it a situation at, where you're going through a lot and, you know, so like, are, there, well, are, are there many companies that fit the bulk?
1: Yes, there are a lot of companies that fit the bill. We do have a lot of fantastic women entrepreneurs. That said, we do get a lot of applications from all male teams, and <laughs> uh, and one of the questions that I always throw back is, why haven't you thought about women on your team? You know, and mm. because we we won't invest if you don't have women on your team. Like, why mm. haven't you thought about it? Because even. Return on investment wise, it's been proven that having gender diverse team creates more sustainable businesses and more profitable businesses. So why am I putting my money um, betting on a single gender team when I know a more gender diverse team will get a better job done? And so Mm. sometimes I really just ask, why don't you have women on the team? Oh, we could, um, you know, it's possible for me to give my wife shareholding. It's not just about that. We actually want the team, the involved team, the strategic team to have. Uh, some you know gender balance in it
0: yeah mm. it's it's interesting that you speak about the return on investment um because one of the questions i did have is you know and this is sort of for a general kind of fund manager question you know how do you number one so what do you consider when you obviously need to ensure that you said that you're handling other people's money besides your own within the fund you know so how do you guarantee to someone who's invested in your fund that you'll be able to give them a return on their investment? Um, no, so like, what's the secret there? Because I know you know there there has to be little secrets of the trade.
1: So there is no guarantee. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's no guarantee when you are investing in anything, including mm-hmm. property, including stocks, you know, including business. There's always going to be some risk. And what is important all the time is an ability to weigh potential risk versus potential return and to try and eliminate as much of the risk as possible. So number yeah. one, part of the process that we have to go do is do a proper due diligence on this business, which includes background checks in the entrepreneurs. You know, mm. you, don't, yeah. you don't want to invest today and tomorrow you hear, oh, this is the you know, the team that Swindled this other bank of this much money, you know you don't (laughs) want to do that. So you do Mm -hmm. a proper diligence on the business and on the entrepreneurs as well as one to try and remove some of that, you know, clearer risk. You try and do a whole full market assessment to see whether the opportunity that the entrepreneur is saying they see actually exists. We're just not going to listen to you when you say it's a billion dollar industry. Oh, really? Is it? We're going to do (laughs) a thorough market uh, research piece where we look at the business opportunity, but we also look at the competition in the space. And I think this is a weakness we've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, not knowing who else is in the space because you're passionate and you're just like working things out. You don't realize who else is in the space who could actually potentially be doing better than you Mm
0: -hmm. or doing
1: the exact same thing as you, Lord forbid. (laughs) You know, <laughs> And so we, we do a whole market research that includes a competitor analysis. It includes an industry analysis. It includes industry risk. Like what are some of the things we should think about in this industry? For example, the risk that would be in a financial services company would be very different from the risk that would be in a wellness company, right? Mm. Uh, and they'll have different regulations and regulators. So we want to understand what type of risk we're looking at and therefore how we cover ourselves uh, for that risk we already look at the potential, potential exit plans because ultimately investing is about, I'm putting in money here. I want mm. to support grow this business to this level. And hopefully a big investor comes in and invests so I can take my money out, which is hopefully grown by now. And, mm. or uh, a strategic buyer, like a bigger um, corporate comes in and says, we want to acquire this company and I can get my money there. And so we have to pre-think what is the potential exit plan for this business before we even invest. Because the ultimate end game is to exit and exit hopefully profitably. And so whilst there is no guarantee, we do a lot of work to try and assess the risk where it can be eliminated, eliminated, where it can be managed, managed, where it can be foreseen. We need to know what we're walking into so that the only risks we face are those ones that like this, you know, Corona, (laughs) (laughs) Pandemic. Nobody could have seen it coming, right? Yes. Uh, Mm. As far as possible. And so we do our due diligence to try and reduce the risk, Uh, to try and help, help. And I can only say help because we cannot guarantee return. Try and Mm. help the return. This is where we give that strategic operational support and growth support if they need to get into markets. Because we do know that the entrepreneurs might not even have the networks that we have and being Mm -hmm. able to provide them as much support as possible to help enable growth is critical. That's how we try and support the return. At the end of the day, venture capital investing, uh, particularly, and angel investing um, is about numbers. And you know for a fact that not all of your investments are going to be successful.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know for a fact that some of them are just going to be self-sustaining, which is great. If they're self-sustaining, they get to a place of profitability and they're growing steadily and nicely. That's also a a fairly decent outcome. And you Mm -hmm. know that only so many of them are going to shoot the lights out, right? Mm -hmm. And it's our hope that the ones that shoot the lights out create such a good return that the overall portfolio is healthy still. So that's how we balance it. Mm-hmm. But so, we know, so our investors know, they also know, and that's why they're part of the ultimate uh, decision making, mm-hmm. uh, which is at the end, when we've done all this due diligence, we have what is called an investment committee, which mm-hmm. in- includes your investors uh, or having a representative of the investors come and look through what you've done and come and look at the business and say, yes, we're happy to go ahead because this is not a decision we only make. We make in isolation. As
0: mm. so, I just wanted to ask because um, you, you mentioned you know it's about the numbers, um, yeah. and you know recently uh, last year actually towards the end of last year, um, we had Stefan Macy, the former Goog- um, Google South Africa CEO. Um, he was the one who localized Google services for South Africa. So we had him on the podcast end of last year. And he was chatting to our ceo Ralph fletcher and he mentioned um when he because he, he's also in, um, investing and he does a lot of angel investing himself so he, he spoke about how one of the keys to investing is to kind of invest in something that you have a passion for you know yeah. so as much as you know you can think okay what are, how well is this business going to be you want to kind of look for businesses that you have some sort of attachment to so i just wanted to find out mm-hmm. in your is in your criteria you know as the as the fund managers do you look for i'm going to call them passion projects or kind of, you know, businesses that do something that speaks to you personally. And then, you know, it's, it's less necessarily about the numbers and more, wow, this could you know, really do something. You know, like you spoke about earlier, that balance between impact and profit. Mm. Um, so does that ever come up in the criteria? Do you look at businesses that, you know, this might not be the most profitable business, but this could make, you know, a massive impact?
1: No. So we, we don't think they are exclusive of each other. We do Mm, believe that when a business becomes profitable, it does create more impact. So we believe Mm. it's kind of like a a two-piece thing. And Mm. so whilst our first filter is definitely commercial viability and, you know, that this business can scale and grow and give us the good financial returns, we want to make sure in the process of giving us this return that it's not doing damage to people, it's not doing damage to the planet, and it's not doing damage to animals. So mm. that's definitely our criteria. And so we exclude particular industries because of that. Uh, we'll exclude your typical sin industries, uh, guns, extraction, um, you know, drugs, mm. that type of thing that has potential to do damage to people, planet, and um, animals. Mm. Um, and Passion projects, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think what we're firmly passionate about is definitely investing in women, women, and that's why it's our first filter. And Mm -hmm. we we deliberately chose to be industry agnostic um, to make sure that we are finding the women wherever they are, and that um, they're in spaces wherever they are thriving, that we can find them. And so we've invested quite across the board uh, from... You know financial technology to food to wellness to education to recruitment everything yeah
0: Mm. okay that's it's it's very interesting um because i was like i wanted to kind of get my head around that because you know i I wanted to put myself in the position um of a fund manager and kind of seeing you know what drives things um so i think maybe we should touch on sort of like sort of maybe really the management perspective. Um, so um, another podcast guest that we had on um, this podcast last week, Bob Wester, um, very interesting guy. Um, you, should, you should look up, look him up if you get a chance or listen to the podcast. Uh, so he can't read or write, but he's um, written the book. He has been involved in 3,500 innovations. But one of the most interesting thing one of the most interesting things that I um, found from his, the conversation with him was that he mentioned that when you were trying to run a business, um, you need people that balance each other out. So, you know, he mentions how he's a, he's a big big picture thinker. You know, you can think about the ideas, but then you need someone who can execute. So I'm just wondering, you know, have, in your experience, um, in the businesses that you've seen successful, is there that balance between, you know, someone who can do the more creative? Yeah. You mentioned yourself that you don't necessarily think that to be a good entrepreneur, you need to be creative. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, so do, do, do you think that, you know, that balance, you know, is required and how, do, how does one find that balance? So, you know, how do you, number one, find out if you're a really creative person? How do you find someone who can execute? Um, and if you're someone who can execute, how do you find that really creative person?
1: Hmm. Yes, that balance is definitely critical. It's definitely critical. That's why we have roles like CEO and COO because the COO is mostly the operational executor, and whilst the CEO is more the strategic visionary thinker, typically. Hmm. Sometimes these, these roles can cross over. But definitely having those kind of key strengths is important. Uh, as the businesses grow, then you need also like your finance person that manages your return and your risk profiles for the business as it's growing, da-da-da-da-da. So team is definitely critical. Any type of business success or any type of wealth-making activity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. And so you don't think you can, you know, Make it on your own. No, nobody is ever really self-made. It's team made, you know. Um and so that's critical. How do you discover which one you are? I think naturally you might be one versus the other, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be seen from what you're drawn to. Are you mostly the ideas person that's coming up with things that like seeing opportunities? Or are you the one that says, so how do we, how do you think we get this done? And this is how I think we can get it done. Are you the one who breaks that down into more uh, practical steps to getting it done? A lot of visionaries are great at seeing the future and seeing what they want to see. But you always need that person who helps create that bridge to making that happen from where we are today to where we are tomorrow. So... I don't know if there's any type of test you will do to get that, but I think you could naturally see it in your own profile if you think about it as those two buckets. Am I the the take-the-step-to-step person that makes things happen or am I the one that dreams up the big dream that other people haven't been able to see? And so if you are uh, a step-by-step person and you're looking for a visionary Look for the visionary that's in the space of what you are passionate about, um, mm. because what matters in teams is that we should all be passionate about the same thing, but we mm. should have different skill sets that contribute to making that thing happen. Right? Mm. And so, let me give a typical example of myself and Sarah, who's the managing partner in Enigma Ventures. So, Sarah is a is a really amazing visionary, and she can you know see things into the future and really inspire people to see that future. I'm Mm -hmm. the operational one, the one that says, great, I love that vision and so let's make it happen. And this is how we're going to make it happen. And I can bring together teams to make that happen. That's a good partnership. Why I can buy into that vision is because I'm passionate about what she's passionate about as well. And why she can buy into me uh, as her operating partner is that she knows that I can make things happen and it will move from vision to actually action. And so what we're clearly very aligned on is the value system, how we want to do things that we want to be supportive of entrepreneurs. We're not the type of investors that are going to say, here, get the money, better bring me 3X or whatever, you're out of my portfolio. We want to have win-win situations between ourselves as investors and our entrepreneurs. We are both passionate about investing in women entrepreneurs and really trying to level the playing field for women entrepreneurs. And we believe, we really believe that that can create more sustainable economies because women are known to invest way more back into their families, into their communities than men do, which means that we'll have better outcomes for education for kids, for health access for kids. You know, uh, communities will think better about how we develop instead of just like, you know, having an extractive mentality, we're looking at how are we recycling and, you know, making things a lot more sustainable for our environment. And so we have an alignment of values, and how we see impact being created but we have different skill sets and Mm -hmm. even our education background is different she comes from a legal background i come from a finance background which is super complementary when it comes Mm to building a fund and having a fund partnership and so how do we look for diversity in skill and ability but alignment in mission and vision that's what's Mm -hmm. critical for creating great teams yeah
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think perhaps the, the same thing is going on kind of between the, the academic world and the business world that kind of like, so.
1: Yeah, <laughs> great do, questions.
0: <laughs> you know, because, you know, so I, I know you've mentioned before um, that the business world and the academic world, they don't necessarily speak to each other. So I, I want to know perhaps one, do you think there's a reason why that's happening? Um, how do we get them to speak together? And, you know, what, what, can, what can we gain from that? You know, sort of having professors and CEOs mm. having conversations, you know, like why isn't that happening more?
1: Uh, that's a very important question. I think that um, they're not, the two are not incentivized to work together more. So, for mm. example, academia and academics get rewarded for publishing in their own academic uh, journals, right? Mm -hmm. They actually get paid. They get paid for having articles published, they get promoted, Mm -hmm. you you can't become a professor without X number of publications. And so you tend to focus your work on producing Mm -hmm. academic articles that are speaking to other academics, rather than on writing stuff that might be of potential benefit to business. Mm-hmm. So, the incentives are not ideally aligned as one of the issues why doesn 't happen more um, secondly, because business is is practice, therefore noted to be a lot more practical, sometimes business looks down on academ- ac- academia because academia tends to be more theoretical and mm-hmm. builds theories and tries to understand why things happen in a certain way and uh I definitely believe that so much benefit and leverage from the two worlds coming together. I'm an academic as well. Mm -hmm. I'm doing my PhD. And I see so much benefit for the two worlds coming together and learning and speaking to each other a lot more. Um, And it's understandable for a person like me who's in practice and I'm making money in practice to say this Mm -hmm. because even though I'm an academic, because I could write academic articles and get them published, but I can also write business articles, which I feel will be relevant for business. But for mm-hmm. a person who is in academia full time, writing for business might not be you know, seen as lucrative for them. Like why mm-hmm. should they just write articles for business when they won't even get paid for doing that, when they can write academic articles, speaking to other academics and get paid for that. So uh, finding places and spaces for bringing the two worlds together is important, but I think another place where they can come together is you know, definitely in things like think tanks and in building policies alongside government, because if we think about developing our economies and developing Africa, it's not going to be done by government alone. It's not going to be done by business alone. It's not going to be done by academia alone. And so if we create spaces like think tanks where the three can come together and try and build solutions together, that would work a lot more sustainably um but that requires you know sometimes it requires money who's gonna pay to get them in the same place together you know and (laughs) and fun manager yeah you know who's gonna who's gonna volunteer and say so i'm the one that's gonna invite all these spaces to come together to chat and i think that might be a space for you know, the, the bigger development finance bodies like the World Bank to be able to do that, uh, International Finance Corporation to be able to do that, um, because they're speaking to all three spaces, so they could have a lot more of that convening power than any one of these spaces individually. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, well, it's, it's fantastic to, to kind of hear your perspective on that, because that is something that, you know, we think a lot about you know, um, we like to think of our conferences as bringing together different stakeholders, like yeah. like you, mentioned, you know, the public sector, the private sector, academics, and startups, because they're never necessarily in the same room. Yeah. Um, you know, and that is a, ch- a challenge that you know hopefully we can address, especially kind of because obviously key to development on the continent, like you've yeah. mentioned, you mentioned, know, in any anywhere yeah. is that kind of relationship between the different groups. Yeah. Um, so Lilamba, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Um, Mm. um, wonderful hearing about, um, what you're doing. I've definitely learned a lot more about gender lens investing. Um, you know, I've, I mean, I work in business to business communications, but for some reason I was not that familiar with gender (laughs) lens investing. Um, so it's fantastic to be able to hear from someone who does invest in that space. Um, and it's fantastic to hear the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a fun conversation. I do want to give a shout out to the World Bank. I think that they are playing the local office in South Africa. That looks after the SACU region, which is five countries in Southern Africa. They're doing a great job in trying to convene those three worlds. So definitely a shout out to them. And thank you for uh, inviting me. It's been a fun conversation. And yeah, good good luck with the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye.